Hello and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights. My name is Oliver Carr and this week I am joined once again by our Head of News, Robert Leeming. Hi Oliver. And by Chen Bachintu, Energy and Infrastructure Analyst. Hey Oliver. It's been a very busy week. We've got an awful lot of ground that we could cover. We've had fallout from the budget in the UK last week. We've had moves from the EU on the Net Zero Industry Act. We're going to be talking about all of that stuff, as well as some of the most interesting deals closed in the last week. And as a special preview, just for the Joint Venture Podcast, we'll be taking a first look at the findings of Inspiration's next market report, the Green Hydrogen Index, with a focus on the Australian market. All of that to come. But... As usual, we begin with the news. Rob, what's been happening? Thanks, Oliver. Well, I'd uh, like to start first with the budget, which happened. The headline-grabbing thing from the, the, the renewable side of things was um, nuclear energy being, being declared as environmentally sustainable. But that was a rare highlight in a budget um, that tended to give scant attention to the more traditional uh, aspects of the renewable sector. And that did anger um, some developers, particularly offshore wind developers um, like Orsted. Um, in the run-up to the budget, Orsted had threatened to put on hold some of its bigger offshore development projects in the UK, including, interestingly, the massive Hornsey 3, if there were no tax breaks in the budget for offshore wind developers, um, which would, of course, alleviate rising costs um, that some developers are struggling with at the moment. No full package was forthcoming, although Hunt did announce an increase in capital allowance rates, um, but only for three years, which apparently is, is, is really not going to be effective. Yeah, that consistency of the business po- tax policy over the last few years. I think I think I've read that it's been four different tax policies over the last yes, two years. I think um, people are looking for some stability, and uh, uh, in that regard, it didn't didn't appear having a temporary measure fill in for three years and then saying, "and we're going to change it at the end." Yes, that, that, that feels very risky because you know these businesses are looking for ever more certainty exactly and probable general election next year probable labor victory means all this could be turned up and there could be a completely new system being brought in anyway orsted um issued a statement pretty pretty quickly after the budget came out and uh, they said it's disappointing that the government has not put in place a full package of support for the renewables industry in the spring budget. Um, Under the government's proposals, we understand um, long-life infrastructure projects such as offshore wind farms would only qualify for 50% capital allowance for three years. Furthermore, the lion's share of capital expenditure on Horn C3 and other forthcoming offshore wind projects will come outside the qualifying scope and time frame. Uh, so basically, they're now going to go away and um, take some time to analyse the, the impact of what Hunt has announced and then come to some decisions. I mean, it's not likely that they're going to cancel these projects altogether, but delays could be on the cards, I think, is is the what I was picking up from, from Orsted. Um they did commit to doing all they can to reach final investment decision on Horn C3, but wouldn't commit to a, a time scale as to when that's going to happen. Aside from that, the recategorization of nuclear power um, will mean that the sector will be able to gain the same kind of government incentives that have been so successful in the boosting of other parts of the renewable space. Um, the Chancellor also announced the long-awaited launch of great British nuclear um, was also 
confirmed during during Hunt's statement. The the new state-owned company will manage the development of nuclear power in the UK to ensure that it provides nearly a quarter of the country's power by the middle of the century. And the other, the only other area really that was highlighted by the Chancellor in his statement was um, carbon cut capture and storage, uh, which Hunt said would receive a 20 billion boost to support early development, which I was speaking to a, a few um, people who work in that space, and they, they say that's quite a groundbreaking moment for that particular area. So there's plenty of policy there to um, go over, and um, the, I think in particular that reclassification of nuclear as sustainable is, I, I don't know, very controversial from the yes. uh, takes I've been uh, seeing in the last week. So it almost comes down to a semantic argument, almost more than a um, practical one. I think many people would agree, even those who are most um, firmly in favour of uh, a sort of purist view of you know renewables are renewable. You can't have a power system that uses a finite fuel source like uranium and call that renewable. Yeah. But you've kind of got this other category which is sustainable, which is a much more um, flimsy phrase. Can be applied exactly. Mostly. So you could you can talk about sustainability in terms of environmental sustainability and in terms of you know long term renewability of power sources, or you can talk about sustainability in the context of a uh, financial plan being long term sustainable in terms of energy security and the sustainability of national security. Yeah. So you've then got lots of different uh, definitions which kind of muddy the water on that. Although, as I say, I think this support will be widely welcomed. Yes, I would agree with that. I think a key issue is the availability of firm power as we further decarbonize the electricity economy. And, you know, would we rather keep the coal plants open or have a nuclear plant um, provide that firm power as renewables penetrate further into the market? Um, I think that might have been a big consideration in this decision. Um, And sort of in that sense, the sustainability aspect of nuclear becomes much more attractive when compared to the regular thermal generation at least in my opinion. No, that's a very good point. You've got to look at the um, the counterpoint. If it's not nuclear, then what? And that's, yeah, I suppose that is a key point driving this decision. The future of nuclear in the UK is certainly going to be on the rise, but exactly the form of that support now is a little bit more in question. Whether we start seeing nuclear introduced to the CFD, for example, is uh, an open question. I suspect not, just because of how very different the intermittent uh, generation of renewables is to that firm power base of nuclear being much more analogous to, uh, as Chandler was you were saying, as co- uh, analogous to coal power. However, talking about those uh, fossil fuel assets, we also have this carbon capture announcement. Now, £20 billion on carbon capture projects is a huge step forward for that industry. It's been nascent for a long time, and this puts some real government support behind it yeah. and will give confidence to investors in this space. Uh, although it's also been heavily criticised for being a subsidy for the fossil fuel industry. Because fundamentally what you're doing when you're funding carbon capture instead of direct renewable solutions is that you are helping a legacy model to decarbonize rather than moving the whole system forward. Money is going to be um, allotted um, in the next few weeks. They're going to announce a list of projects that's going to be the beneficiary of this cash. And then, of course, we'll find out more details about where the money is actually going. We will keep an eye out for that. That was a long news story, Rob. What else have we got? Uh, well, yeah, we can um, go on to some 
other things. This this was a big, a juicy deal, really, that, that happened this week. Um, investment firm KKR announced that they were um, selling their stake in the renewables developer XLEO to uh, Brookfield Renewable. Not sure um, the the, uh, the sum behind that deal. I'm uh, trying to find out, out that at the moment, but it's likely to be quite large. KKR is selling its 50% stake in the business, um, and as a result of the deal, Brookfield will own XLEO in, in its entirety. Um, and they are developing quite a lot of renewables capacity at the moment, XLEO. They, they've got three gigawatts currently in place around the world with a further three gigawatts in development. Um, in addition to that, they've got ten, a further 10 gigawatts of advanced near-term pipeline um, in locations as far along as Spain, Italy, and uh, the US, Australia, Japan, and Latin America. So they really are developing quite a big uh, global footprint, and that all now falls to, uh, to Brookfield to manage moving forward. What else have you found, Rob? Um, well, the next one, uh, moving away from renewables to infrastructure, a fibre fundraise. Always love a good fibre fundraise. It's always nice to think of new fibre connections sprouting up in um, areas that they weren't in before. In this case, the UK fibre provider uh, Netomenia has completed um, a £230 million debt financing. Quite a big group of lenders on the deal, including, interestingly, the UK Infrastructure Bank, which are, are really kind of getting their tentacles into the digital infrastructure side of things. Um, Standard Chartered, RBC, NIBC and ING were also on that deal. As things currently stand, uh, Netamina is, is, is one of the largest um, outlets in the UK. It's over 28,000 customers and 410,000 connected premises, but they want to grow this considerably moving forward and that's going to be the purpose of this new debt that they've raised and um, it's an evidence of, of how easily, I guess, that the, the fibre sector can now raise big amounts of money with lots of um, prestige backers. Um, and then uh, that moves rather neatly into another story that I wanted to mention also on the digital infrastructure side, um, which is Marguerite, um, often investing in, in digital infrastructure. Um, they have backed the uh, data center developer Canaptor this week um, with 36 million given them a 36 million loan to finance a new data center and uh, this is what i thought was interesting that the the data center will be entirely powered by renewable energy i think it's going to be linked to one of um, stockholm's many district heating networks which i think power about 30 data centers in the con- in the country in in the city uh, and it's another example of the growing links between the digital infrastructure sector and the renewable sector it's becoming an increasingly predominant and interesting um, crossover in the fact that you're seeing many if not all really these days new data centers announce PPAs or you know the, the fact that they're going to be powered by green energy and it's almost as I said before becoming a prerequisite for that particular um, that particular type of development. Yeah, these data centers certainly seem to be a point of coming together for many different aspects that we're interested. It's infrastructure, it's renewable, it's you've got district heating in there, you've got so yeah, many overlapping... Exactly, um, it's everything being tied together. So yeah. many overlapping expertise that go into these projects. Yeah, 
And you're going to see a lot more of that moving forward. Uh, thank you very much, Rob. Um, so we've discussed um, policy in the UK with the budget, and there's plenty more news to talk about in the EU. Could you bring us up to date? Yeah, I mean, some of the uh, response to the to the budget, some of the negative response to, to the Chancellor's budget last week was that, um, you know, people in the renewables industry in the UK are looking for a similar... Um, announcement to what's been done in the in the US with the um, with the Inflation Reduction Act. That's uh, becoming almost a clamour, really, in the industry at the moment. People want to see something similar, and this budget didn't even come, come close to, to offering what people want. The European Union, on the other hand, is acting to try and counter the IRA, um, and they last week. I think the day after the budget, unveiled the Net Zero Industry Act, which is kind of the first plank in the EU's attempts to um, to put something similar together to the Inflation Reduction Act. Within this announcement, the EU says that they said that they want to use measures to ensure that 40% of its clean energy needs are provided by domestically constructed renewables projects by by 2030. In order to achieve this, the the, the new act. Um, when passed, if passed, will follow the um, lead of the IRA by offering tax incentives and subsidies to ensure that renewables manufacturers set up shop in Europe and thus make it easier for um, project development in Europe because it reduces um, supply strain stresses. Um, In order to achieve the 40% target, the content will need to have around 36 gigawatts of wind capacity online and 30 gigawatts of solar, so a long way to go. Uh, both the EU's Innovation Fund and the European Sovereignty Fund will provide funding that will be used to nurture newer technologies such as heat pumps and hydrogen electrolysis. That's another aspect that's been mentioned of the new bill. Uh, despite this, though, the plan as it currently stands will not come even close really to equaling the, the sheer amount of spending power that Joe Biden put behind the IRA when it was passed last year. That's quite interesting to hear because it's also strongly linked to the recent proposal for electricity market reforms that was just released a few days ago and should come into effect very soon. Um, And this proposal um, is very much renewables focused. Um, And as renewables penetrate further into the electricity market, um, it becomes much more important that trading around electricity from renewable sources is strengthened. And that has been addressed in the proposal for electricity market reforms with um, strong uh, marginal pricing systems being encouraged to be preserved. Um, Just to increase the efficiency of utilization of of renewable sources, you need very good signals and very accurate signals. And with the added importance of two-way contracts for difference, the funding that will come through from the net zero industry could help with the sleeved nature of two-way contracts for difference and with government-backed PPAs to ensure that um, there isn't a barrier for companies with smaller balance sheets to sign PPAs. So that's very interesting, this news. Um, and a lot of it is tied to re- the renewables um, economy. So I think we're seeing a very different picture now starting to emerge, as it were, from you know, the three areas of key interest for us at the moment are the UK, the US and the EU. And the US arguably has brought a sledgehammer to the renewables market with the IRA. It's yes. a huge, lots of funding, arguably not very targeted, um, but you know it's, it's certainly drawing interest. The EU seemed to have a much more 
carefully thought through, I'm going to say, surgical approach. You've got this market reform happening. You've got the Net Zero Industry Act, uh, which is pushing a bit more funding into it. It's not obviously not as large, but no. some commentators, uh, I think, would agree um, is, a, is a much better targeted and much more efficient use of state intervention in the market. And then you've got the UK... <laughs> Which is really lagging behind at the moment. Which, no. uh, in fairness, we are um, par- half- halfway through the uh, REMA, the electric that's, market review. Well, that's, that's important. Which you know, I think is the, on the, the horizon. Yes, which is the equivalent to this um, uh, EU process, which is also ongoing. But yeah, I think we're starting to see very clear dividing lines between these markets. Whereas before now, um, it seemed like a much more level playing field. We're starting to see some real distinct differences grow yes. between the po- on the policy side. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the EU is playing catch-up, and, and the UK is even further behind. But, you know, the REMA will be one of the biggest announcements of the year on the UK side, so that's going to have to be watched incredibly closely. So we're now at the time of the season where we're beginning to publish our uh, longer pieces, our longer forms of, of market insights, our longer forms of market research. And one of our more important products is the Green Hydrogen Index. And that is Oliver's speciality as our resident um, senior hydrogen analyst. And Oliver, we just wanted to talk to you um, a little bit about um, the Green Hydrogen Index, or as we call it, the GHI, which will be released in the coming days. Um, And to just give um, the audience a bit of a teaser... Um, as to what's in the GHI and what the GHI means. Thank you very much, Chen. It, it feels strange to be in the seat of being interviewed in these things. It's normally me asking the questions. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> How the tables turn. <laughs> but anyways, let's, let's get into this, shall we? So since this is coming out um, in the next few days, what is the Green Hydrogen Index and what is the methodology that we use to in it within the index? So... The Green Hydrogen Index is a product that we've been developing for a couple of years now. It was when it first started. And really it was a it was developed as a way of gaining insight into a nascent market. So the methodology of the market is using real, quantifiable, trackable data to assess different countries and over time track how those countries are changing with regards to each other when it comes to in this case, the nascent hydrogen market. Now, the way that we've chosen to approach this, we could have done it in a number of ways, but the way that we think is the most insightful is to break down our index into several different scores. So first of all, I want to talk about policy. Policy is one of the areas where there's the most uh, interesting um, advancements on hydrogen, which markets are we going to be pushing from the top government level and which markets are lagging behind in that. That's a huge component of the most attractive markets. So that's um, the first part of the index. However, the other main factors that we look at, the other two big uh, scores that we give these countries, these markets that we look at, are based on consumption and production of green hydrogen. So green hydrogen is very different from uh, many of the other renewable asset classes that we look at. It's not a case of which site will be the most appropriate for a wind farm. It's When we're talking about green hydrogen, we're talking about something which one day will be a strong, tradable commodity in the energy space, analogous to natural gas markets today. So understanding where in the world the strongest regions of production are and where the strongest demand markets are is a key point of understanding the hydrogen industry of the future. 
Interesting. No, thank you so much for explaining that um, further. And just um, to clarify a little bit on the production side of things, is that um, expected production or actual production today? So we use a combination of factors. Uh, since we started doing these reports, we've now started to see much more concrete steps towards hydrogen production projects. So when we started doing this, no hydrogen production projects had reached any kind of meaningful financial settlement. Now they have, and we include that data. Um, so a market which has begun to close hydrogen deals early is given a big boost up in our scores and ratings. However, we also depend heavily upon much more fundamental uh, market conditions and factors. So the attractiveness of a particular market from a lending perspective, uh, the strength of a nation's natural resources. And that's something we're going to talk about Australia in a minute. And that's a very key part of that country's uh, case around uh, producing hydrogen, for example. Mm. Thank you for touching on Australia, uh, because as I understand it, the new GHI is focused on the Australian market. Just in terms of policy, as you mentioned, and production, why is the Australian market interesting? So I'm going to start with the production side. So as I said, the case for building up hydrogen production in Australia is incredibly strong. So Australia is already an energy exporting economy. It exports huge amounts of coal currently to uh, predominantly South Asian markets. It's a leading exporter of coal, natural gas, and uh, petroleum, as well as other raw resources such as iron ore. And this export economy model actually fits quite well into a hydrogen future, due in large part to the fact that Australia has in abundance not only the resources that led the 20th century, but those that are required for the 21st as well. It has incredibly high capacity factors for its renewable projects, solar developments, and um, very strong wind profiles along its coastline. So building up a uh, renewable basis in Australia already has a strong grounding, and that's why we've seen that renewable market double in size in Australia twice in the last decade. So a strong renewables market and a strong exporting culture definitely makes Australia a very strong candidate for green hydrogen production and export. If you're building that case around producing green hydrogen in Australia, one of the things that you would run into if you were just thinking about the Australian market in isolation is that compared to the natural resource available, Australia has a very small uh, industrial sector. Like the refining of goods is actually something that is typically done after exports. So Australia exports large amounts of raw resource but doesn't refine it. And so if you're looking to build a business case around selling green hydrogen in Australia, you're going to run out of customers potentially very soon, which is why the approach we've taken is to look at a number of different countries and look at the interactions between them when we're building up these reports. So Australia has been signing memorandums of understanding with markets in Europe, such as the Netherlands, um, working closely with the German government. Cl closer to home, they've been working closely with uh, Japan. There's been interest from that market too um, in getting involved in the Australian market. So you can kind of start to see why a lot of the investment interest in green hydrogen has started to coalesce around that Australian market. That's very interesting. So they are already working very proactively to build their supply chain and build their trading partners. Exactly. So this will be a very interesting market to watch as it further develops. But also last year, uh, we've covered many different markets um, focused around their hydrogen economy. And how does Australia compare to these markets? 
That's right. So in the past, we've looked um, closely at the UK. We've looked at Germany uh, and the Netherlands, as already mentioned. And I think actually it's a very interesting counterpoint to talk about Germany because Germany is almost the exact inverse of Australia in this. Like I've already spoken about the limited industrial capacity of Australia. Germany has the opposite problem. Germany has huge industry that needs constant energy imports to fuel. This has been one of the biggest stories of European geopolitics in the last year. How does Germany get its energy? Now, the answer to that in the past was Russia. Uh, Russian gas largely was fueling the German economy, and that is no longer seen as a secure and sustainable source of energy. So we started seeing Germany work with partners in Europe and further afield. So I've mentioned them working with Australia. They're also looking at um, partners in Norway and the Netherlands, and also countries in the sort of medium range. We've got um, green hydrogen developments happening in countries like Namibia, for example, in, Af- in Africa, and Morocco, where you have these uh, economies that almost fit the Australian model of having a lot of natural resources and not necessarily the domestic economy to support those green hydrogen projects. So that's why that international cooperation is such a key point and comparing these markets to one another um, is so poignant. Very interesting. Thank you so much for breaking that down. Um, Looking forward to the release of this product um, and seeing your review and analysis of the Australian market and its comparison with with its contemporaries. Thank you. Uh, uh, It'll be great to um, uh, get this uh, report out there. One of the um, new things that we're including in this report, which we haven't done with those previous ones, is we're for the first time introducing GHI, Green Hydrogen Index League Tables, in the report itself. So the, this is a, so this is a uh, section of uh, the report where we look at not just the country which is the focus of the report, but also look at the context in which that is situated. So for example, in the policy space, we can see how our assessment of the Australian policy on green hydrogen compares to the other countries we've covered and also a sneak peek of some of those countries that we haven't yet but we've gathered the data on so if you're um, interested in seeing how these different markets stack up then i encourage you to uh, keep an eye out for the report when it comes out in the coming days so thank you so much for that oliver and breaking down the uh more overarching themes of the report very much looking forward to the release of this of this report um and look out it will be released in and look out, it will be released very soon. And we are all very excited to see how Australia has the opportunity to accelerate its transition towards a net zero economy by harnessing its abundant wind and solar resources in tandem with hydrogen. Thank you very much, Chandra. Okay, it's been a very compact episode, lots of um, different topics we've covered there. Thank you so much to uh, Rob and Chandra. And thank you, Chandra, for giving back control of the podcast after you'd finished. Always a pleasure, Oliver. Looking forward to the next one. As Chandwar mentioned, this is the season of our long-form analyses. We've had, so far this year, our European PPA Outlook report. The GHI Green Hydrogen Index report on Australia will be coming out very, very, very soon. And next month, we will also be launching our European Renewable Risk Index. Something else to look forward to? More details of that to come And don't worry, when it arrives, we will be taking a thorough look at it right here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening once again. Links to the research and articles discussed can be found in the show notes and on the Inspiratia website. Feel free to send any feedback to podcasts at inspiratia.com. That's it for this week. Goodbye. Bye, Oliver. Goodbye.